All right, last week we read about Elisha taking a cruise, a pitcher of salt. You might think of a tea pitcher you use on a summer afternoon to pour your iced tea with. He took a cruise of salt and cast it into the spring of drying waters, which had dried up there in Jericho. And from that verse, we learned about what salt represented in this case. And it was the gospel covenant where the thirsty soul dried up from the ravages of sin is healed by receiving the covenant of the gospel. And many things represent the gospel in the Bible. We got to learn a little bit about salt. Now let's look in verse 22, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 22. So the waters were healed unto this day according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. The waters were healed. Did you know that the Hebrew word for healed is the same that is translated as the word physician in the Old Testament? That seems pretty logical, but I hadn't uh, thought of that before. A lot of things I haven't thought of before. And this healing is what our great physician, Jesus Christ, does for us. Does for those who thirst for his healing. It's not just the physical healing, but even more so the healing of the sin-sick spirit of mankind. Jesus healed a lot of people physically. He healed lepers and people who were blind and lame and had all sorts of infirmities. But he did that not just to show people that he could heal the body, because the body is corrupted with sin. And each one of those people whom Jesus healed of a physical disease died. Not that day, perhaps not of that disease, but they died. But those who believed on him shall never die. And the word healed that is also used as physician is found in Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 17 through 22. Now listen to God's words spoken through Jeremiah to Judah, and I want you to listen for the word physician in here. It's Jeremiah 8, verses 17 through 22. For behold, I will send serpents, cockatrices among you, which will not be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint in me. Behold the voice of the cry of the daughter of my people, because of them that dwell in a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their graven images and with strange vanities? The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. For the hurt of the daughter of my people am I hurt. I am black. Astonishment hath taken hold on me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician here? Same word as the word healed. Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Why is that? Because they don't 
acknowledge their physician. Everything that Israel needed to be healed, to be saved, to be delivered from their enemies, from the power and the power of sin and all of that was already available to them if they would just have it, if they would just have him. So you see the recovering of the health of the daughter of my people as the recovering of the health of the dry springs here in Jericho were connected with the same Hebrew word that is translated both healing and physician. And that's what a physician does. A physician heals. Now let's look at the next phrase in verse 22. It says, so the waters were healed unto this day. Now you'll see that pretty often in the Bible, unto this day. And that, to me, has a very plain meaning that it is the case all the way until the day that this passage was written. So whenever it happened, between that time and the day that it was recorded by the prophet, meant unto this day. If you read unto this day and think, why, you mean even today those springs are still going? I think you've missed the mark because it's, it doesn't appear to fit. There are some things that happened unto this day in the Bible that now are no more. And that could cause you confusion if you interpreted it that way. And then at the end of verse 22, it said, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. So the waters were healed. Unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. That is, which was according to the word of God that was given to Elisha, and that word he spake. Do you know what the purpose of performing these miracles was? It was that the faith of the people would be strengthened. When God promised through his prophets, that he would do some marvelous thing, some miraculous thing, something impossible in the eyes of man, many would not believe. They would scoff. They would express their doubts. They would even write off those lofty promises that God made and say, oh, no, that's never going to happen. But God performed what he said he would perform, didn't he? And he always does. And he didn't do it so the people would say, wow, look at old Elisha. Man, that's a powerful prophet right there. And that's how people get their eyes off of God and onto a man. And let me tell you, it happens in the blink of an eye. You find a, a, a man who is a gifted orator or writer, or perhaps both, has a convincing presentation. He's persuasive. He's charming. Whatever his assets may be, character-wise or personality-wise, and he tells people something, he can get a lot of people to believe it just because he says it. And he may start with the Bible. Jim Jones started with the Bible there in, in South America. And almost a 1,000 people drank the poison Kool-Aid and gave it to their children because they believed what he said when he had removed himself far away from the Scripture. So God doesn't do these miracles so people can say, look at Elisha. Oh, look at the Apostle Paul over there, how that 
serpent fastened itself to his hand out of the fire and was released and he suffered no harm. He did it so people would say, wow, our God is the true God. And his promises are yea and amen, regardless of who he uses to bring them to pass. And for us today, these things are written. Listen to Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now you think about the people who watched Elisha put the salt in those springs and what's about to happen here in just a moment with those springs. Perhaps some of them said, well, that's no big deal. There was probably water in there already. And yet others would believe that this was truly from God because there were those in that day who confessed Elisha truly has the spirit of Elijah upon him. Just like that centurion said at the foot of the cross, truly this was the son of God. Truly this was a righteous man. But these things, according to Romans 15, verse 4, are written for our learning. And the word learning there is also translated as the word doctrine. Isn't that good? So where does our doctrine come from? It comes from that which was written, not from man's theories about the Bible. And boy, there are plenty of them. You take somebody's last name and you put the word ism at the end of it, and there you go. You've got a doctrine, don't you? It, it's not, doctrine is not according to man's preferences or his personal opinions or his fancy outline. I've seen some outlines that were marvelous. The only problem was you end up following the outline and not following the scripture. You get yourself in trouble. And then the passage in Romans tells us why these things were written, not only written for our learning, but that we might have hope. And hope there is, is faith. It's an expectation of a reality, of something that is going to happen. And it says that we might have hope, but in between the words that we and might have hope is another phrase, and that is through patience and comfort of the scriptures. Now I separated that out to show you how this verse teaches us on which basis we might have hope. When the scriptures were written, they were written for our learning. Why else would they be committed to writing? God didn't need to have them written down to remind him of what he said, like I do. I have to type notes out because when I study and God teaches me through his word these truths and how to explain them in a way that uh, fits your understanding, fits my understanding, I have to type my notes down. So the next day when I come in here, I can say, oh yeah, that's right. That's, that's what I put. That's what I wrote. That's what scripture I referenced. But God doesn't need that. He doesn't need it to be in writing for himself. So those words were given to us for our learning. They were written for our learning. They were written that we might have hope. And we have hope not only because the scriptures were written long ago, 
but also through the endurance, the patience, which is what that means, endurance of the Scriptures. They teach us to wait on God's timing. And through the comfort and consolation of the Scripture, that word comfort is consolation. It's also the root word, uh, parakaleo, is for the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, who's mentioned in John chapter 14 and other places. These Scriptures teach us that what God said came to pass in Elisha's day, and what he says will come to pass in our day will come to pass just as certainly as it came to pass in Elisha's day. And you know, one day, we're going to be able to speak to each other like this about prophesied truth that came to pass. Now, right now, we have, I'm just going to take uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to read to you a very familiar passage. And you hear it at funerals sometimes, and it's a good one. Verses 16 through 18. Now I'm going to read it to you as it's written. And then I'm going to read it to you like we'll be able to say it one day. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And that's what we do. We do it not only at funerals, but we do it when we come to church and we arrive at such a passage in our study. But one day, those who are born again are going to be able to say it this way, For the Lord himself descended from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ rose first. Then we which were alive and remained were caught up together with them in the clouds and met the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And we once comforted one another with these words. And you know what we'll be able to add? The same thing that was added here in verse 22. All this came to pass that day according to the word of the Apostle Paul, which was the word of the Lord. Isn't that great? And if you look at, in fact, this is a good way to encourage you to strengthen your faith. And that's to mark every place in your Bible where God promised something would come to pass and then fulfilled it in the Bible. And when you do that, it will train your inner man to respond this way. Okay, God said it's going to happen and it's going to happen. You won't question it. You'll say, He's never said something was going to happen and it didn't come to pass unless it's still a future event. And when you're done, you should know of a certainty that God's promises will come true. And that you, through patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. You will have an expectation that what God says is going to happen is going to happen. One reason Satan's crowd attacks the Bible is that they know if they admit that it's true, then they're condemned in the very shoes they stand in right now. 
So rather than repent, it's more appealing to their flesh to shoot down the truth and the authority of God's word. And while they shoot it down and mock it or pervert it, we who are the Lord's take comfort in it. And we're led by it. And we have our hope in it. Verse 23. Back in our text in 2 Kings chapter 2, if you're just joining us online. And he went up from thence unto Bethel. Now this is Elisha. And as he was going up by the way, there came forth little children out of the city and mocked him. And said unto him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Now, the next three verses, particularly the last one, may leave you a little bit puzzled when you read them. You may ask, why would God do this? And the answer you're going to find will be the same as it has ever been or ever will be concerning passages like this. And we'll look at that more closely when we get to the end of verse 24, I believe it is. But look at verse 23 at the word children, because this is the basis on which you may say, why would God do this? The word children in the Hebrew language is a masculine noun, and it is translated in different ways as boys, as young men, servants, youth, young, or child, or babe. So don't think and I'm not saying it was or wasn't, but don't think there's these little three-year-olds running out to meet Elisha in the way and doing what they're about to do. These very well could have been young men, and I tend to think that they were at least old enough to understand what Elisha was, was doing and what, who he was purported to be. So it has a broad application in the Old Testament. Don't get caught up thinking, oh my goodness, these are little bitty children so innocent and young. I don't think that's the case here. But it says children in the King James, the Hebrew word is a masculine noun that's broadly translated. It says they mocked, verse 23. In the middle of the verse it says, and mocked him, or they scoffed at him. And here's how they did that. They said, thou bald head. This is the first notice that we're given, as far as I can tell, that Elisha's head was shorn, shaven, if that's the case. Says thou bald head. So he was either already shorn or he was shorn at some point after we were introduced to him. I don't see that the scripture tells us it one way or another. In the Old Testament, the word bald is normally associated with leprosy. You'll see a lot more references to it when the disease of leprosy is addressed in the book of Leviticus than you will anywhere else. However, the word bald is also used at least twice to refer to how some people responded, some men responded, when they were in sorrow or in mourning. And I'll give you one of those. It's in Ezekiel 27, verse 31. Ezekiel 27, 31. And they shall make themselves utterly bald for thee, and gird them with sackcloth, and they shall weep with thee with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. So this is someone who's in mourning and sorrow that's referenced here. Now we have no reason to believe that Elisha had leprosy. 
So I don't think you could say, well, perhaps he was a leper. I believe that would have been mentioned very clearly in the text. But we do have clear evidence that he was mourning over the recent loss of Elijah. Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind. Elisha saw him, and then he saw him no more after that. So to Elisha, that's the same as him dying. He's gone. He doesn't see him anymore. And if you remember, Elisha called Elijah my father. So there was a very close relationship there. And it seems likely to me that he probably shaved his head out of sorrow and mourning. And I won't hang my hat on that, but that seems to be a more legitimate explanation than him being a leper or just shaving his head because it's stylish like mine. Y'all know why I started shaving my head? No, you probably don't. My wife does. There was a time when I had a full head of hair. And it was right about the time I was in the DPS Academy in 1988. After that, it wasn't as hard anymore, but that academy. And I started to notice that my forehead was getting bigger and my hair was getting less. And after a while, trying to comb over that frizzy hair... And then I realized I had a putting green right here and a sand trap behind it if you're a golfer. I said, that's it. I'm going to shave it. So here you go. But in these most pitiful circumstances, having lost Elijah, having shaven his own head, and going up to Bethel, how could these young men mock Elisha as cruelly as they're doing? And by their comments, it was apparent that they knew a little bit about him, that he was going up, and they may have been witnesses to the things that had been done by Elisha, which you would think would cause them to fall on their face in fear before the Lord. But just like many in Jesus' day, in fact most, they did not reverence what the Lord was doing in their midst. Let's look a little deeper, though, into what may have been meant and what I gleaned from the bald head comment. On the surface, it looks like the young men were mocking Elisha's physical appearance. But I don't think that's all that they were mocking. Do you remember the cruel words of the sons of the prophets to Elisha, both in Jericho and even before then? It said, and if you look back up in verse 5 in the same chapter we're in, they said, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? Now think of the word bald right here as you think of that. From thy head today. When Elijah was on earth walking with Elisha, he was Elisha's master, his head. Much like the husband is the head over the wife. There was an authority there. Because Elijah had not yet passed his mantle to Elisha. So you might say he was a mentor, a spiritual mentor. And think about the husband as the head over the wife. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 3. Paul wrote, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head 
of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. The same Greek word translated head in that verse is also found in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42. Matthew 21 and verse 42, where Jesus, it says, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now back to the 1 Corinthians chapter 11 passage. Listen to verse 4. Every man praying or prophesied, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. What did we read in the prior verse about who the head of that man is? It's Christ. And because we read that Christ is the head of the man, then there can be no other head that takes Christ's place. The man who prays with the authority of another on his head, beside that which was God-ordained, dishonors his own head. And although he has a physical head, which is in a sense dishonored, it is Christ his head which is dishonored. What if somebody said, well, I'm I'm a Christian, but I pray in Buddha's name. Well, you dishonor your head. Because the head of every man is Christ. Then in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, it said, But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. That is moving past the appearance of the head. The woman who throws off the authority over her, the husband dishonors her head when she prays. So a woman who says, I don't need to submit to my husband's authority. I'll just submit to God's authority is a rebel. The scripture clearly states that Christ is the head of man. The man is head over the wife and Christ, the head over him is who? It's God, the father. He willingly submitted to the headship of his father. He didn't say, well, I'm uh, I'm God. I'm just as much God as my father, and I don't have to submit to my father, and I can still be scriptural. Jesus never said that. He did the will of the father. And so for a man to say, I I don't need Christ as my head. I'm just going to go directly to God. You can't do that except through Jesus Christ. But he doesn't throw off the authority of his head. Now, listen, a woman doesn't pray through her husband to get to Jesus to get to God. That's not how that works. We're talking about the authority, submitting to the proper authority as the Scripture states it. So if you understand this principle, then let's consider what these mocking young men are saying to Elisha here. When they said, go up, thou bald head. They're not just making fun of his shaven appearance. But they are mocking him for having lost his master, his head. It's the same mocking the Apostle Paul suffered when he preached to the men of Athens on Mars Hill. 
Remember, they were superstitious. They had all sorts of gods. They even had an unknown god in case they missed one of the gods they were supposed to pray to. And in Acts chapter 17, verses 31 through 32, listen to this passage as the Apostle Paul preached. Acts 17, verses 31 through 32. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge, remember that word, the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Now, the use of the word judge in that passage implies great authority in the one who will judge the whole world in righteousness. That's the one of whom Paul spoke, Jesus Christ. He is the head of the whole world and everyone in it and everything in it because he created everything. And Paul also said in that passage that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. However, the unbelievers at Mars Hill figured Jesus, Paul's head, was dead. That's why they mocked. And to, for him to say there would be a resurrection and that that man who was, who was dead and has already been resurrected in Paul's day, but that resurrected Christ... That that would be the one, he would be the one who would judge the whole world in righteousness. These unbelievers at Mars Hill mocked at that. Just like those sons of the prophets and also these young men mocked at Elisha. And when these mockers... Now, we don't specifically know what the mockers said to Paul other than what's recorded in the scriptures... But we know what the sons of the prophets in Jericho said. And they would have told Paul the same thing. Knowest thou that the Lord took away thy master from thy head? (laughs) You have no hope of resurrection. You have no hope that the world will be judged in righteousness by that one man. And hopefully we have an amplified look now at how deep and how profound that mocking and scoffing was when it was directed toward Elisha in our text. Now let's look at verse 24. And he turned back, that's Elisha, and looked on them and cursed them in the name of the Lord. And there came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. means they ripped them in pieces. It says he looked. Now that's more than just a glance. Elisha didn't look at them and go, eh, no big deal. That word looked means that he considered, he perceived, he beheld them. Example, over the years, my wife or daughters will come home with some clothes, bag full, new clothes. And I'll be sitting on the recliner or in the garage doing something. And I'll say, Daddy, look. And I'll look at these new dresses I got. 
So I usually look up and said, how much did they cost? No, I didn't say that. I'd say, oh, how pretty, and look back down at whatever I was doing before. But they perceived that I had not beheld the beauty of those dresses. And so they would say, no, Daddy, look. Well, now, I already looked, didn't I? But not like they wanted me to. They wanted me to behold, to consider, to perceive what they had bought. And so I would do that because I love them. I probably didn't love the price of the dresses. It was better that I knew it not than to have known it and then beheld it. Elisha looked upon these mocking young men, not quickly, but in a decisive manner. A manner that beheld their cruel, scoffing words. Back in the text, it says that he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Now, let's look at the word cursed for a minute. So we don't think Elisha just lost his marbles and started throwing profanity at him. At them. That's not what he did at all. We use the word cursed in a fairly limited sense today. And actually, in most of Texas, we call it cussing. Instead of cursing, don't we? If somebody says, well, I'm going to curse at them, you would think, well, you're not from around here, are you? But that's a very limited definition. Let's look at the first use of the Hebrew word that's translated cursed. The first use of it in the Old Testament is found way back in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 8. Genesis 8 and verse 8. Also, this is at, after, at, the, at the time of the flood. Also, he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated. That's the word for cursed. From off the face of the ground. So when the waters decreased, they were abated. They were caused to lessen, to be less than they were before. That's the idea of the word curse here. And when, so when Elisha cursed these young men, he decreased their significance. What did they said? Go up, thou bald head, and all of the implications that come with that. But he decreased their significance. He decreased their presence. He made light of them in their words, and he did so, look at the text, in the name of the Lord. So even if you didn't understand what cursing meant, if you perhaps thought, well, uh, that's your opinion about what cursing meant. It says he did it in the name of the Lord. And that by itself, in context, should tell you that this cursing was not as evil or was not evil as somebody might think initially. After all, in just two chapters of the Bible, God cursed a serpent, the ground, and Cain. And we know his cursing was not wicked. It was righteous. And then in verse 24, at the end, it says, Two she-bears. Then came forth two she-bears out of the wood and tear forty and two children of them. This was the result of this cursing. They were rendered insignificant, weren't they? Mocking and scoffing in one moment and destroyed in another. The Bible tells us that pride goeth before destruction and an haughty spirit before a fall. And that's exactly what these young men demonstrated before they were destroyed, before they fell 
in the presence of these two she-bears. Perhaps that's where people get the idea that a mama bear is fierce. And they certainly were here, the she-bears. I mentioned to you at the beginning of the lesson, or of these passages here, that you might be puzzled or wonder, why would God bring such a violent scene to pass? When you initially read it, you, you see there were children who mocked Elisha. Elisha cursed them, and then the bears tore 40 and two of them and they killed them. And that's a shocking scene, isn't it? Whether they were little children or preteens or teenagers or young men, that's still a shocking scene. That's a violent scene. And I also said that the answer would be the very same answer, the same reason God does any such thing then or now. One, if you're trying to answer why would God do this, number one, he has perfect foreknowledge. So God knows every thought, deed, desire, motive, knows the future of everyone and everything. And two, with that being said, he owes man nothing but righteousness. God is righteous and holy. Mercy and grace are gifts he exercises by his will because he loves us. That's why he sent Jesus to die for our sins or we would be hopeless. And three... These young men, whether they were this big, this big, or this big, sinned by mocking God's prophet. Because that prophet was doing God's work. Listen to Mark chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus said, The Son of Man indeed goeth, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good were it for that man if he had never been born. Because Jesus knew what Judas would do, not only at this time, but what he would do after he betrayed Jesus. Because Jesus knew that Judas was not going to repent, he was not going to place his faith in Christ. In fact, he knew he was going to try to buy off those priests with those 30 pieces of silver, and they said, what is that to us? See thou to it. And because Jesus knew what would have happened had Judas never been born, he could say that this would have been a better situation than Judas being born and dying as a lost sinner when he said it was good for that man if he had never been born. Now, you and I don't have foreknowledge about people in that way. The only foreknowledge we have is what God's Word tells us about the future. And we have that foreknowledge by faith. Imagine if the other apostles would have said, well, Jesus said about Judas in those days, it would be better if he had never been born. So we're going to try that. And so they look at the apostle Paul, who was Saul of Tarsus, same guy, who was persecuting Christians, consenting unto the death of Stephen, the righteous preacher, And if those apostles would have said about Paul, the persecutor of the brethren, it would have been better for that man 
if he had never been born, they would have been wrong. Paul did repent. They didn't know he would. Paul was saved. They didn't know he would be saved. And he was used mightily of the Lord to build churches, strengthen the brethren in them, and to write much of the New Testament, from which we've already learned this morning in two different passages, Romans and and actually three in the Corinthians and Thessalonians. But we may conclude this now about the men whom Elisha cursed and whom the she-bears tore into pieces. Good were it for those men if they had never been born. And one more thing comes to mind here. For children, for young men, to go to an adult and to speak so disrespectfully, normally, not in every case, but normally, shows a little bit about the ones who raised them. And I think most of us were raised to speak respectfully to adults, probably to say, yes, sir, and yes, ma'am, thank you, please, I raised my children that way. If a teacher would have called me and said, your daughter spoke very disrespectfully and cussed the teacher out, I would have probably said, are you sure that's my daughter? Do you have the right phone number? (laughs) For her sake, it better be the wrong child, right? And not that my children nor yours were perfect, but I would have been shocked to hear something like that. However, there were then... And there are today many parents who teach their children to rebel against authority. So these children speak to authority figures like the young men spoke to Elisha in our text. And in most cases, I believe it's a direct indication of the way they were taught by their parents. And that's sad. Let's finish up with verse 25. And he went from thence to Mount Carmel, and from thence he returned to Samaria. You notice there that the events in the prior verses did not deter Elijah from continuing on his way. He didn't do like the apostle Peter who said, I go a fishing. Elisha didn't say, I go a farming, because that's what he was doing before. And we close by considering this. In adversity, we find out what our true character is. In adversity, we find out what our true character is. We find out how serious we really are about trusting the Lord and being patient in our lives, about drawing comfort from the Scriptures rather than running to whatever the world's devices are to try to make us feel better. Next week we'll pick up with chapter 3 and look at Jehoram, the son of Ahab, who's now on the throne. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for those who came. For those who tuned in, for those who will watch the recorded version later on, thank you for their hunger for the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we continue in our singing, our praying, and as our pastor preaches in a little while, that you'll give us the grace and mercy, the liberty for him to preach and for us to hear, to believe what your Word says about us, about you about things past and present and things to come, and that we might draw comfort from the Scripture and that our faith would be increased. In Jesus' name, amen.